we are about to be gored by the other horn of our dilemma, whether it is the push to find a genetic explanation for religious inclinations or Professor David Engelman's attempt to exculpate criminals from all blame because their neurons made them do it, the Academy has begun to mount increasingly vehement attacks on our free will and even our ability to reason. The abolition of man proceeds apace, and in Prince's inimitable lyric, dim devils come dressed as light. Welcome to the Acton Vault Podcast, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Gabriel Jaja, producer. The Honorable Janice Rogers Brown, retired judge of the U.S. Circuit Court for the District of Columbia, delivered an evening plenary address as part of Acton University 2018, highlighting the hallmarks of authentic freedom. You can find additional resources in the show notes of this episode, as well as previous episodes on our website at acton.org slash podcast. If you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Vault is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Every law student discusses very matter-of-factly what type of judge he or she will be when the call inevitably, inevitably comes from the White House to the governor's mansion. And when I was a law student, among my circle of friends, our plenary speaker this evening made the short list of those judges whom we admired most. Until last year, the Honorable Janice Rogers Brown sat on the United States Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, a position for which she was nominated on July 25, 2003. Many presidential appointments, including many judges, are nominated and confirmed without much fanfare. Judge Brown, however, was an exception to this. It was not until June 8, 2005, nearly two years later, that she was confirmed by the Senate and able to assume her duties on our nation's second most influential court. In the months following her nomination by President Bush, she endured tremendous abuse from special interest groups mockery in the press for her judicial philosophy, and was, as a part of a distinguished group of jurists, the inspiration for a Senate filibuster led by then-Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid, who said of then-California Supreme Court Justice Brown, I don't know if I've ever known a more activist member of the judiciary anywhere. The only explanation for this must be that Senator Reid simply does not know very many judges. Despite the intense scrutiny, a distasteful and insulting editorial cartoon, and the stress of being thrust in the national spotlight in the midst of her confirmation ordeal, Judge Brown maintained a reputation for grace, dignity, and humility among her colleagues, even using her opening statement at her confirmation hearing as a plea for unity and civility rather than a defense of her record or philosophy. She, also, she has also delivered on a promise made to the Senate Judiciary Committee at the end of her confirmation hearing. I have tried all my life to act with principle and with integrity, and I know my role as a judge, and I will make every effort to do the very best that I can. 
In her years on the bench, both in California and at the federal level, she gained a reputation as a defender of the Constitution and a forceful voice on behalf of the cause of individual liberty, which, as we all know, or will know by the end of this week, is what characterizes the free and virtuous society. In the brutal confirmation process, then-Senator Barack Obama criticized Judge Brown in a way that is significant to one of the important themes that we will consider this week. He maligned her by saying, Judge Brown has gone out of her way to use her position in the courts to advocate for increased protections of property owners. Many worse things have been said about judges, Judge Brown, but we wish there were more of your colleagues on the bench who would be vulnerable to such criticism. Without any further delay, would you please join me in welcoming to the platform a committed servant to the Constitution, to our nation, and to her faith, the wife of Dewey Parker and the mother of Nathan, a graduate of the UCLA School of Law, and tonight, our plenary speaker, the Honorable Janice Rogers Brown. Thank you, that was lovely. Thank you so much. <laughs> Good evening. I want to begin by thanking Father Sirico and everyone at the Acton Institute for inviting me to speak with you. Like uh, Kenneth Elzinga, I can honestly say I am thrilled to be here. I started this journey two years ago. <laughs> so it's taken me a while, uh, but I want you to know how much it has refreshed my spirit just to be among you and hear thoughtful people dedicated to recultivating the principles of a free society. In particular, as a free market apologist, I appreciate the Institute's effort to dispel the myth seemingly omnipresent in today's pop culture that behind every tragedy lies a greedy big business boogeyman in need of the loving and ideologically converting touch of a good down-to-earth woman. <laughs> well, I have to tell you folks, I am no Meg Ryan. <laughs> Neither am I suited for a role on the Hallmark Channel where men can only find true love when they give up business success in favor of advocating for bigger bike paths. <laughs> for better or worse, I stand alongside those who promote free markets, a healthy respect for property rights, and as a Christian, and the rule of law as the best means of extricating entire societies from the chains of poverty. And as a Christian, I wholeheartedly subscribe to the notion that any successful system of free enterprise must be influenced not only by our rational intellect, but also by the revealed truths of our creator. Usually, <laughs> a university is not a place to pursue truth. Indeed, that may be an older problem than we imagine. I found an issue of the Harvard Lampoon from the early 1900s, which features a university catechism. 
The catechism asks, quote, what are the effects of a university and answers to unfit students and teachers for life here or hereafter? But the catechism blithely concludes that's no problem because the university teaches there is not life hereafter. Over a century later, and Harvard, like many other elite universities, is still no habitable city for the mind or the soul of man. Thank goodness for the safe space for robust discourse that is Acton University. I am grateful for this brightly lighted island of study and scholarship. I applaud Acton University's advocacy of business and economics informed by theology, and I hope my remarks will contribute in some small respect to that endeavor. I want to speak to you tonight about the state of freedom in our country and how we can work together to preserve and restore it. Freedom a word so lofty in its aspirational grandeur and yet so often abused and misused in practice. For as President Lincoln once observed, we all declare for liberty, but in using the same word, we do not all mean the same thing. This was true in 1864, and it is arguably even more so today in our post-Christian age. Not only does our contemporary polity disagree about the meaning of freedom, but its competing definitions are fundamentally incompatible, such that what one man defines as freedom, another recoils from as the exercise of tyranny. Of course, I recognize our challenges may seem to pale in comparison to the real life and death threats faced by people like Maria Machado, the speaker at Tuesday night's plenary session. Still, ours is not merely a first world problem. I agree with Mary Ann Glendon's observation that tyranny does not always announce itself with a blare of trumpets or bullets. It is just as likely to come softly. To reground society on proper first principles, we must first understand what characterizes authentic freedom and what is necessary for human flourishing. God grants us freedom from bondage and freedom of choice. As people of faith, we may rejoice in the knowledge that, in the words of a plaintive refrain I learned as a child, Pharaoh's army got drowned. But they don't stay drowned. That army keeps being reconstituted and given newer and better tools with which to woo us or subdue us. This struggle between light and darkness, between slavery and freedom, is perpetual. In 1944, C.S. Lewis predicted the time might not be too far off when the abolition of man would be complete. He recognized that man without God would not be man. He said a dogmatic belief in objective value is necessary to the very idea of a rule which is not tyranny, or an obedience that is not slavery. 30 years later, Professor Arthur Left candidly uh, acknowledged that the project was complete. Um, he said the rejection of God eliminated the possibility of any coherent or even more than momentarily convincing ethical or legal system other than the diktat 
of the enlightened elite. Quote, if we cannot believe in a complete, transcendent, and imminent set of propositions about right and wrong, findable rules that authoritatively and unambiguously direct us how to live righteously, then all premises for any system of ethical rules flounder on the problem of the grand says who. <clears throat> Thus, the essence of modernity is an ideological commitment to a philosophical position designed to prevent a divine foot from getting in the door. Freedom in this sense presupposes there is no nature and no God. Man is no longer a rational animal. Human behavior differs in degree, but not in kind, from the behavior of billiard balls and soap suds. At the same time, we posit rather incoherently that whatever man chooses himself to be is right because what is right conforms to man's desire. Or said another way, if you think you're a pig, you're a pig. Lewis, though, is right. We lost not only the hope of a co coherent set of principles, we lost the foundation for any argument about human dignity and natural rights. Back at the dawn of modern times in 1927, Julian Binder decried what he called the treason of the intellectuals. According to Binder, he said, for more than 2,000 years, philosophers, theologians, scholars, and artists were attached to the purely disinterested activity of the mind. They preached in the name of humanity or justice the superiority of universal principles the idea of a world common to all men. The American founding was indebted to these ideals. Thanks to these disinterested intellectuals, Binda says, humanity did evil, but honored good. This contradiction was an honor to the human species and formed the rift whereby civilization slipped into the world. Henry Jaffa contended that the American founding limited the ends of government to enhance quote, the intrinsic possibility of human excellence, unquote. The idea that through the great Western canon, from the philosophy of Athens to the revelation of Jerusalem, the enlightenment in England to the political society formed in Philadelphia, true goodness could be grasped. And all of the disciplines, mathematics, physics, religion, philosophy, were not mutually exclusive, but instead oriented toward a singular, true, perfect, or if you prefer more econometric language, efficient order. And that idea has profound implications. Our rejection of the hypothesis has led us into problems, paradoxes, and absurdities that we cannot overcome. But it is important to be clear there is no war between science and religion. There is only a war between two rival philosophical worldviews, one which acknowledges transcendence and purpose and one which denies it. So I want to talk to you a little bit about some of the things that are happening in the social sciences and uh, their implications for freedom. For instance, there is Jonathan Haidt, um, he calls himself a moral psychologist, and he describes the goal of his book, The Righteous Mind, as seeking to change the way we think about morality, politics, religion, and each other. 
In his main metaphor, hate compares the relationship between our rational mind and autonomous processes to a rider on an elephant. He says, the rider evolved to serve the elephant and can do little to control it. Thus, what we call moral reasoning is merely the rationalization of self-interest. There is no tra traditional universal morality. Or in other words, men are not really free, and we cannot really exercise moral reasoning. We are just the victims of our autonomous processes. Daniel Eagleman, a neuroscientist who has argued, authored several popular books about the brain, dismisses free will, at least for most people. According to him, we are not ordered toward the search for truth, both because nothing about science tells us there is truth, and more fundamentally, Nothing about science tells us that, that we get to do any deciding at all. To Eagleman, we are driven to be who we are by vast and complex biological networks. The logical outgrowth of his view of man is, as Eagleman argues, to remove the concept of culpability from our lexicon, particularly in the criminal justice context. Because our poor decisions are simply manifestations of malfunctioning biomechanics, Eagleman would allow the government to meddle with your brain in all sorts of intrusive ways. And why not? If man is not a truly moral agent, why should we be treated any different than the animals we euthanize or disable whenever they become problematic? In other words, if the lobotomy stops the crime, why not do it? Eagleman's proposal not only destroys the foundation for man as a rational being, but also cedes to the government extraordinary and dangerous power. The government not only gains the power to correct abnormal behavior, but also the power to define what is abnormal in the first place. I don't think conservatives would fare well in a regime like this. After all, at least one elite university has hosted a conference considering whether libertarianism is a mental illness. <laughs> and some on the political left equate conservatives to the Taliban. That brings us to the behavioral economists. Daniel Kahneman, winner of the Nobel Prize in Economics, is credited with the invention of behavioral economics, an idea that emphasizes man's limited capacity for perfect decision-making and favors choice architecture to nudge us into making the right decisions. Championed by policymakers such as Cass Sunstein, who served as one of President Obama's top regulatory advisors, this form of freedom in essence asks, why think for yourselves when the intelligentsia can do it for you? This form of coercion is increasingly pervasive and dangerously insidious. Indeed, this is the same architecture used by video game manufacturers to encourage addiction. Its influence is subtle, and to the untrained observer, it often goes undetected. And in the political realm, the ease with which it can be repackaged in the guise of compassion makes it broadly appealing. Even with the change in administrations, the nudging philosophy has taken root in the legal academy as well as in other social sciences. As with all ideas from the ivory tower, it will continue to embed itself and percolate down through our culture. I will return to this phenomenon in a moment, but I want to uh, at least touch on uh, the social scientists. 
because I can't ignore the rapidly increasing scholarly literature of democracy skeptics. As Jason Brennan bluntly puts it in Against Democracy, psychologists, sociologists, economists, and political scientists have spent more than 60 years studying how people think about, react to, and make decisions in politics. And they reasonably conclude, quote, most of us are horribly ill-equipped for self-government, unquote. That is true. As a recent survey shows, 7% of Americans think Chocolate milk comes from brown cows. <laughs> Brennan's solution, as Yuval Levin notes in his review of the book, is to once again give more power to experts rather than making the people less ignorant. Perhaps the real danger lurking in the work of these men is the one that haunts so much of our technological age. We can conceive only of technological solutions, even to decidedly non-technological problems. But technological insight into the inner workings of the human person perpetuates the old heresy that man may flourish quite apart from any consideration of virtue and goodness. The great error of both collectivist determinism and individualistic license is detaching the understanding of human freedom from obedience to the truth. In grasping for a metaphysics beyond technology, we can begin to see the paradoxical conclusion that the most dangerous among us are those who seek to perfect us. Human choice will inevitably result in imperfect actions and occasionally disastrous consequences. But this imperfection is not proof that we lack a fixed nature. Instead, it is a manifestation of our nature. The classical philosophic and religious traditions and their various conceptions of vice, sin, human imperfection, and the limits of both the state and technology remain central to any defense of our inherited civilization. In accepting the insights gained by neuroscience that we are flawed, imperfect creatures, incapable of sustained logic or perfectly rational choice, we actually legitimate the noblest aspect of the human person. Imperfect human choices ultimately inform our capacity to make sense of good and evil. The framers of the Constitution acknowledged the immutability of human nature, but left room for reflection and redemption. To rest as they did upon the accumulated wisdom of the millennia is to acknowledge the Enlightenment's flawed acceptance of untrammeled reason and to reject the primacy of the untrammeled state. But the aphorism that defines our times rejects the product of our forefathers' sober reflections. To understand how and why they invented our exceptional version of political freedom, we must start by answering the question phrased so eloquently by the psalmist, what is man that thou art mindful of him? We are told in the book of Genesis that human beings are made in God's image and likeness. Now, I am no theologian and certainly, certainly no Thomist, but I am a bibliophile and a believer, and these characteristics have helped me understand a few things about what it means to be human. Only the willfully ignorant will deny that Christianity was a prerequisite for the modern world. 
Pagans were not persons, but parts destined to dissolve back into the whole. The human person, the human being is a person because she is made in the image of God, and personhood is a dimension of our humanity. Frank Meyer poignantly describes the gap created in human consciousness when the finite confronts the infinite. The contrast between the perfection of transcendence and the imperfection of human existence gives us only two options, to accept with humility the unbridgeable gulf between what we are and what God is and recognize that our freedom includes the duty to move toward perfection or, in our hubris, to declare ourselves to be gods and seek to impose our limited version of perfection on other human beings, either by persuasion or force. But that is not the destiny for which we were made. The Imago Dei confirms that, unlike other creatures, human beings are uniquely called to freedom. As John Paul II explained in his encyclical, The Splendor of Truth, Genuine freedom is an outstanding manifestation of the divine image in man. Therefore, under the classical Christian understanding, freedom does not mean the unhindered ability to fulfill whatever desire we may have whenever we may desire it. Instead, it, at its most basic level, freedom is the ability to choose good and avoid evil. Why is this so? If freedom is tied to the divine image, then it cannot be indifferent to values. Rather, we enhance our freedom when we act in accordance with the goods associated with the image and likeness we bear, and we are less free whenever we intentionally reject them. To become free, we must use our intellect enlightened by revelation to discern truth, and then we must exercise our will to pursue that truth. Thus, genuine freedom and free will will require possession of a radical form of self-governance and self-mastery that permit us to remain single-mindedly focused on pursuing the good, irrespective of the vicissitudes of mood, life circumstances, or the presence of temptation. Or to put it another way, man becomes free to the extent that he comes to a knowledge of the truth and to the extent that this truth and not any other forces guide his will. There are many takeaways from this, but the principle among them is the recognition that freedom and truth are interdependent. Um, and to quote John Paul II again, he says, truth and freedom either go together hand in hand or together they perish in misery. In a world without truth, he states, freedom loses its foundation and man is exposed to the violence of passion and to manipulation both open and hidden. This is quite a lofty conception of man indeed. Understanding what we possess by virtue of being made in God's image means we can truly join confidently with the psalmist in answering his question, what is man that God is mindful of him? Our intellect and free will, our capacity for self-determination all resoundingly confirm our creator has made us a little less than God and has crowned us with glory and honor. I imagine that you, like me, recognize that this conception of the human person is eons away from the hyper-individualistic, atomized understanding of man that currently pervades our culture, and you would be right. We inherited from 
the enlightenment, a conception of man as a free-thinking being fully in control of his rational faculties. And that was the putative justification for man replacing God, as Professor Left helpfully explained. But now, with the rise of the behavioral sciences and their corresponding push to describe all human behavior as a series of actions predetermined by our genes and brain chemistry, we are about to be gored by the other horn of our dilemma. Whether it is the push to find a genetic explanation for religious inclinations, or Professor David Engelman's attempt to exculpate criminals from all blame because their neurons made them do it, the academy has begun to mount increasingly vehement attacks on our free will and even our ability to reason. The abolition of man proceeds apace, and in Prince's inimitable lyric, dim devils come dressed as light. So I want to talk about this concept of nudging as just one example of something that maybe looks very good. Um, it's a variation on the theme of our reduced capacity for um, rational thinking and decision making. And it's not as extreme. So, uh, you know, it it's just says it's, man is not capable of the type of purely rational thinking promoted by the Chicago School of Economics. So each person has a, a uh, planner and a doer. And um, one operates very automatically. So drawing on Kahneman's research, um, Nudge, which is Sunstein's book, describes these various deficiencies in human reasoning that make it difficult, he says, to rein in the doer. The solution for Sunstein and Thaler is not to encourage us to grow in virtue, i.e. to the prudence that discerns good from bad choices and instructs when and how to act, Rather, Sunstein and Thaler advocate allowing bureaucrats to create good choice architecture that corrects our predictable behavior mistakes and nudges us toward making the right decision. They call this approach, and I love this, libertarian paternalism, arguing it is legitimate for choice architects to try to influence people's behavior in order to make their lives longer, healthier, and better. In other words, the solution to the problem highlighted by Kahneman's research is not to recognize that perhaps we were too hasty in assuming that reason divorced from revelation would lead to human progress. No, because such a recognition would require creaturely humility. Yet another example of these complicated virtues so eschewed by the proponents of nudging. Instead, what we have here is a type of revelation that plants that of our creator. The revelation of the elite, the wisdom of the plutocrat, the expertise of the technocratic machine. What does it mean for a human life to be more or less better than another? What does it mean to be healthy, happy? Don't ask God. Ask the behavioral economists. So I want to, if I have time, give you a concrete example. It has to do with saving for retirement. And according to all research, uh, Americans save too little. Education is the obvious answer to help employees make better decisions about how they should save for retirement. Yet um, the, uh, the writers of this book say, well, you know, we've uh, 
looked at what education does and what we've concluded is teaching is hard and consequently education is not in and of itself an adequate solution. Um, so this is their conception of freedom. With a little top-down control from an enlightened few, the masses will be freed from their irrational tendencies. Each person consequently becomes free to make better decisions about health, wealth, and happiness in accordance, the nudgers assure us, with his view of his own best interests. But I suspect the nudgers are only telling half the story, the palatable half. After peeling back the rhetoric about compassion and best interests, we see that subscribers to the Nudge School do not actually care about the best interests of the individuals who make up the populace at all. They have one and only one set of interests in mind, their own. In the words of the late, great Peter Lawler, quote, nudging people to be healthier and wealthier is in the upper tribe's self-interest and in accord with their relentlessly puritanical moralism when it comes to health and safety. The impulse for nudging here comes from those inhabiting the truthful and moral world of whole foods, reacting against the tribe that's more attached, for a variety of reasons, to fast foods. Accordingly, nudgers seek to get humanity, with all its messy complexity, to fall in line with whatever moral fad currently is sweeping through the intelligentsia. In contrast to overt government control, nudging taps into our natural communitarian sensibilities. It's hard to convince people that programs focused on health and wellness or financial stability could really be as nefarious as I'm suggesting. But a peek behind the veil reveals that nudging is anything but a harmless form of choice architecture. For first and foremost, we cannot forget the dangers that arise when we complacently and unquestioningly allow bureaucrats to mischaracterize policy decisions as pure science. I am certainly not anti-science, properly understood, but science has its limits and is as capable of abuse as any other intellectual tool. Though science qua science can empirically demonstrate objective facts, it cannot answer the moral questions that are equally accessible to our reason. All too often, politicians wield an adulterated, morally laden form of science orchestrated to forward their particular agendas rather than discover authentic truth. So there is a flaw in the underlying premise that no amount of science can disguise. Under the guise of scientific knowledge about human decision-making, Sunstein and his fellow nudgers aim to push humanity writ large towards answering deeply vexed moral questions in the manner the nudgers find most satisfactory. Are we once again left to the authority of the great says who? Or worse yet, will all contested moral questions be resolved by the presentation of evidence in a single case? Thus, all questions are directed to quality or quantity of their science and not to the questionable underlying moral premises. It's a classic shell game. Under the surface, then, we see the insidiousness of nudging revealed. What nudgers ultimately desire, like many other similes engaged in the war to reshape our culture, is to deconstruct man, to destroy how he thinks, reshape how he acts, and blaspheme what he holds sacred, and then rebuild him in, the progress, in progressivism's own image. The ability of 
nudging to stealthily remove moral questions from public debate and resolve them without democratic input provides enough reason to worry. But this is far from the only cause for concern. The nudgers seek to use science to govern, and so we must also remember that where we give our government an inch of power, it will take a mile. And before we know it, what started as a slight encroachment on our liberty will have grown into control over massive swaths of our lives. Indeed, we can already see this advancement in occurring in the real world. If nothing else, recent experience with the Obamacare individual mandate and the later administratively imposed contraceptive mandate shows us that a nudge quickly becomes a shove, which inevitably devolves into a headlong push over a cliff right into the mouth of the ever-hungry governmental leviathan. But perhaps most egregious of all, consider what nudging does to man's genuine nature and capacity for freedom. Remember the point of nudging is to remove the burden of deliberative decision-making from the individual person. Rather than make a person wrestle with the difficult choice of whether to choose a piece of fruit over a candy bar, we will just strategically place the fruit so it will be chosen without much thought, or better yet, with no thought at all, and voila. A healthy person is born, but remember too that choice is the very heart of virtue, and unthinking actions do not contribute to moral growth. Though nudging may make a man externally healthier, assuming that is that it is effective, it will not make him internally free. Every time the government nudges us toward making a particular choice and difficult decision, it necessarily also removes the chance for self-reflection, moral growth, and even creativity. In essence, it removes the freedom to fail, our chance to learn through suffering. It withholds from us the chance and indeed the necessary opportunity to get down in the mud and engage in the hard work of making our passions subservient to our will. Of learning to think for ourselves, of recognizing what is good and choosing the good freely. Just think back on your own lives. How many hard conversations have catalyzed immense changes in our relationships? How many times have our mistakes and repeated encounters with the same old vices given us pause, pricked our consciences, and suggested we reorient our priorities? More than food preferences and retirement plans are at stake here. Everything is interconnected, and as we allow ourselves to be formed to a greater and greater degree by government, we lose the capacity to exert our independence and freedom in whatever realm of individual decision-making is left. As Hayek noted, man learns by the disappointment of expectations. Liberty, is not only mean, liberty not only means that the individual has both the opportunity and the burden of choice, it also means that he must bear the consequences of his actions. Liberty and responsibility are inseparable. Alexis de Tocqueville described the problem of an overly involved government with remarkable foresight. He predicted that the effect of the tutelary government would be to, quote, innervate, extinguish, and stupefy the polity till each nation is reduced to nothing better than a flock of timid and industrious animals of which the government is shepherd. What a far cry from the noble conception of man born out in the classical tradition and scripture. Rather than possessors of inimitable dignity, capable of authoring our own lives and charting our own courses, we have become weak, malleable little balls of clay, 
subject to the whims of the ruling class. And make no mistake, there is a ruling class and a new aristocracy, and it is apparently hereditary. So how do we stem the cultural tides that seem to be leading us ever closer to perdition? How do we recapture the Christian anthropology of man? Despite what my remarks may suggest, I hope we have not passed the point of no return. I would like to answer this question where we began by turning once more to the words of Abraham Lincoln. Our reliance, he says, is in the love of liberty which God has planted in our bosoms. Our defense is in the preservation of the spirit which prizes liberty as the heritage of all men in all lands everywhere. If we are content to see others chained, he warns, we are preparing our own limbs for shackles. And if we become accustomed to trampling on the rights of those around us, we have lost the genius of our own independence. Though Lincoln spoke of physical chains and corporal enslavement, Fetters of thought and imprisonment of mind prove no less dangerous. In our contemporary culture, we must cultivate a deep love within ourselves for our God-given liberty, using our will to zealously guard against infringements in whatever form they come. We must also remember John Paul II's admonishment that truth and freedom either rise or fall together. We have a moral obligation then to think not only of ourselves, but also to defend all who will fall victim to these attempts to deconstruct what makes us uniquely human. In the 21st century, proclaiming release to the captive requires speaking out against attempts to deny, to deny or negate our free will. Granting liberty to the oppressed necessitates courageously calling out the false idols of compassion for the poor and downtrodden that undergird this philosophy. We are not talking about a battle of semantics or a purely academic exercise. We are talking about the very stability and perpetuation of our blessed republic, and surely that is worth fighting for. So, if you recall, um, we have uh, questions being fed to us uh -oh. <laughs> through Slido. Okay. And um, I will um, we'll have a time for a few of these. So, what are your thoughts on the, on the increased politicization of the Supreme Court, so much so that voters make their decisions solely on the state of the court? Wow. <laughs> um. Well, it would be good um, to live in a world where the Supreme Court was not a political institution. But the reality is it is a very political institution. And um, if voters are making their choices um, because they perceive it to be a political institution and it is important to them, um, I am glad that they are doing that rather than ignoring what is happening. 
Can you share how you deal and discuss with your colleagues, deal with and discuss with your colleagues the relationship between law, morality, and revelation? Wow. <laughs> um, whoever asked that question, um, I think, has a, a uh, view of what happens in the judiciary that is probably pretty unrealistic. <laughs> We rarely discuss such things with our colleagues, at least as colleagues in the deliberation on a case or something like that. Now, if our colleagues also happen to be our friends, then uh, you know we talk about those broader issues. But um, that rarely comes into a discussion of a case. Um, the most, I will say, is that sometimes you can sneak some of those considerations into the actual um, drafting of the opinion. And that does cause people to at least have to engage those issues. Okay. Now, I don't want to steal your answer to this next question, <laughs> but I've heard you answer something similar. Okay. And I almost used this quote in your introduction, but I didn't want to steal it. <laughs> The question is, what issue is most on your mind? What keeps you up at night? And I don't know if you remember, there's a remark that you gave, or some remarks you gave to the Federalist Society one time where you said, I'm a conservative judge, which means that I spend my time thinking about solutions to social problems in contrast to my liberal colleagues who spend their time thinking up new ones. <laughs> so, well, that, that is still a very good answer, you know. <laughs> so what um, are those issues that, you, that, that, that uh, are on your mind most? Oh, my goodness. Well, it, it's hard to even know where to start. Um, I am um, a person who really does think that this is an exceptional country and that um, the the constitutionalism um, that was articulated here um, is something special. There's really been nothing like it um, in the world. And um, what I see all around me is that um, everything on which that is based is now met with um, skepticism, if not utter hostility. Um, there's a philosopher died recently, I won't get his name right, Leslie Kowalikowski, Kowalikowski. anyway. Um, he said that among the most important um, words ever written, right, we hold these truths to be self-evident, and yet uh, we now live in a culture where no one who, uh, or rarely anyone who is part um, of the cultural elite believes that, right? There are no self-evident truths, mm -hmm. but that is really the basis uh, of American constitutionalism. And so, um, you you know, the judiciary is not immune to those changes. And so, there are conservative judges who very much believe in and want to defend the Constitution. But there are many who would simply say, uh, you know, as they, people have been saying for at least a hundred years or so. We've outgrown that. That was fine for the founders, but you know we have other problems. We need solutions to 20th and 21st century issues. So, 
What are your thoughts on Justice Elena Kagan's opinion in the recent Masterpiece Supreme Court case? Does this signal a rise in principled court decisions? Oh, <laughs> you know, I don't know. I, I would hope so. I, you know, if I, if I could, you know, if magical thinking will do any good, <laughs> I will wish for that. Um, I really, I really hope so. The, the, I mean, at least in Masterpiece, I think they reached the right conclusion that the, the uh, Baker did not lose. Um, so I have to be happy about that. But it was a very narrow decision, and it was focused really on um, exactly how the commissioners in Colorado, <laughs> you know, had behaved and sort of the specific provisions of the anti-discrimination law. So we still have the problem that somehow we find ourselves in a situation where anti-discrimination laws now trump the free exercise clause of the First Amendment, and we can't predict how that's going to go. I mean, the next person up can't really look at Masterpiece and figure out what the answer is going to be. So um, I, I don't know what that does. I mean, glad for the result. Um, it would have been nice to... Uh, you know, have them engage a little more on the hard questions that are now being raised by this collision between the anti-discrimination laws and the Constitution. Will Roe v. Wade ever be overturned? I have no idea. Anything is possible. We might someday, <laughs> um, you know, have a completely different court. Or um, perhaps, I mean, I think one of the things that, that has really happened in, for, in, to the benefit of the pro-life movement is that um, science is just overcome. I mean, Roe v. Wade was really bad science. Um, and people are, are just learning so much more about it that um, it's actually shifted public opinion. I mean, there was a while when public opinion was heavily you know, pro-choice, and now it has shifted back the other way. And I am convinced um, that the reason for that is now uh, everybody's first picture in the baby book, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, is, is in vitro. It's, uh, you know, so that has, you know, you see that it, you know, there's, you, there's words and there's law and then there's reality. So. What surprised you most in your years on the bench? Ah, wow. But there, there were a few things that I guess that surprised me. I suppose um, what maybe surprised me the most is that I was always on an appellate court. And appellate courts have a process which requires you to, depending on if you're on a, a Supreme Court or an intermediate appellate court, to convince either at least one other judge, or perhaps three <laughs> other judges. Um, and that is an interesting process. This idea of, you know, that, that you are doing symphonies, uh, rarely solos, and so you have to try and actually find a way um, to reach consensus, sometimes on very contentious issues. Um, and so one of the things that surprised me is how good a process that is if you make a number of people who actually are really smart and can think hard about things 
sit down and work through it, and then you have to write it, right? And so much of what I see happening around us with everybody, you know, never an unpublished thought, you know, Twitter flying hither and thither all over the place. Um, I think that if we could have in our political discussion, uh, you know, more of that process of you have to persuade, right? You have to actually be able to write it down, back it up, explain how you got there, um, and try to enlist their support. I think we have much better politics. <laughs> Who is your favorite political theorist? Oh, oh man. I don't know. I, I, um, I'm not even sure that I read political theorists per se. So my answer <laughs> um, is, is probably going to be one that people will find very odd. Um, I would say J.R.R. Tolkien. <laughs> Do you believe that protecting religious freedom is enough, or should religious people be more active in defending their views as universally good? Oh, my. Well, I don't know what is meant by um, whether protecting religious freedom uh, is enough, because we haven't protected it. Uh, we have uh, really uh, allowed ourselves to, to lose a constitutional protection. There's no doubt about that. That has happened to us, and we did nothing. Um, I think people were stunned. But um, what you may not be aware of is that the, the, the pressure on religious freedom goes all the way back to the early 90s. Um, in a case, I think it was Smith B, the case is Smith B, the, some personnel board or something like that. But basically, that's where the court dumped the, um, you know, the, the uh, higher level of scrutiny for um, laws that um, infringed on religious, on free expression. Um, and basically said, if uh, the law is um, generally applicable and neutral, in other words, not specifically explicitly directed to infringement on religion, no harm, no foul. So that is how we got RIFRA. That is why the Congress, and by the way, at that time, early 90s, um, the vote for RIFRA, which is the Restoration of Religious Freedom Act, was overwhelming, and it was across the political spectrum. It was not a you know, right-left issue uh, at all. But I don't think you could do that now. You, know, you, you could definitely not do that now. And so the problem is, we actually are in a situation where although, in theory, there ought to be constitutional protection, there is actually only statutory protection, and that could go at any time. And I don't know if you recall, but when a couple of states tried to enact what was essentially RIFRA, they were, you know, harried, uh, pilloried out of the public square and, you know, threatened and boycotted and all kinds of things. And that was something that Congress itself had passed 20 years earlier. So we, we have not protected it. So the answer to your question is no, it is not enough. Um, people of faith, need to be aware of what is happening. They need to begin to articulate 
um, arguments. Um, they need to get into the public square and defend free exercise. That is the first of our constitutional protections, the right to conscience. And it is under assault from every direction. And the administrative state uh, makes that so easy for anybody who wants to do it, because you can't get at the decisions of administrative agencies, really. You're going to have to defer to their fact-finding, you know, and you're going to have to defer even to their law decisions um, if it is unambiguous. So yes, we need to do more. Okay. Looks like we have time for one more question. It's a pretty naughty one. Uh-oh. <laughs> I thought I had escaped. <laughs> Could not seatbelt seat belt tickets and taxes on cigarettes be considered nudges? Are these nudges beneficial or should they be fought? Ah, that's interesting. Um, I don't know. Um, you know, I think the um, seatbelt law is probably, um, you know, just a law. I mean, it's one that... You know, maybe people um, weren't thrilled to have, but they became convinced, you know. And I guess the nudge would be that many manufacturers have actually made it impossible for you to start your car <laughs> without the seatbelt. So they have basically trained us. That clearly is a nudge. Um, it doesn't come directly for the, from the government, but I guess the government encouraged them to find ways to make people respond. And I'm sorry, I forgot the second one. Cigarette taxes. Um, yeah, that, that clearly is intended to control behavior. And it's interesting how tax law is really being used that way. If you, if you look at the Obamacare individual mandate, that's exactly what it was, escalating penalties. And since the IRS enforced it, perhaps prison. That's more than a nudge. That was kind of a brick bat. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Judge Brown, thank you so much for joining us tonight and for being here this week. Thank you so much. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you like to hear more of. If you're familiar with our past content or have attended an Acton event and would like to see it in a future episode, you can email us at producer at Until next week, for Acton Vault, I'm Gabriel Zhajan.